Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, for, for joining us here on Mental Health Comedy. We're the show where comics and entertainers come in and they practice mental health skills, resilient skills. We know that mental health is a topic. We know it's also a practice. We know about physical fitness. We are learning about emotional fitness. I'm Ed Krasnick. I'm Mr. Uh, Universe. Uh, Mr. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Universe of something, depending upon my emotional state. My co-host is Jennifer Kalari. She is a child and family therapist. She has a wonderful organization called ConnectedParenting.com. And our guest today, I am super excited and I've never used the word super before, except with the word man on the end of it, Superman. Our guest is a great comedian, an Emmy-winning writer. We're going to talk to him about that and other things. He's the host of Fitz Dog Radio for many years, the great podcast. It's Greg Fitzsimmons. Greg is going to join us in just a second, but right now, I want to talk about a few things. We have an election coming up. We have... A high holidays for our Jewish friends. We have, and I've never said our Jewish friends before, but we have some. And it's the year 5781, the Jewish New Year 5781, Ain't We Got Fun, is my slogan. There's a lot to talk about. So many mixed things happening. We Major things. We have elections. We have a pandemic. We have the world learning about mental health and mental health awareness. We have judgment. We have forgiveness. We have the day of Yom Kippur. We have all of those things. We're going to talk about all of it today uh, with Jennifer and then Greg. So sit back, relax, uh, fasten your seatbelts. We're an airbag for the show because it is an emotional roller coaster. And I want to do some emotional shout outs, welcoming you no matter what emotional state you're in. This is for you. If you're using your scales of justice to weigh baloney, welcome. If your own feelings are debating you and winning, welcome. If one of your family projects involves plexiglass dividers to avoid each other, welcome. If you've tried so many antidepressants that you mistakenly call Alexa, Selexa, welcome. If you've decided to set limits by telling your therapist, we have to stop now, welcome. If you're using ways to find peace but are not willing to make a left across five lanes of traffic, welcome. If you're able to communicate better with the Marvel Universe than your own spouse, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on Mental Health Comedy. It's great that we have awareness weeks and months to raise consciousness about mental health, whether it's Mental Health Awareness Month, Suicide Prevention Week. Those are all great, but they're getting very specific. And I have a few of the, the ones that are coming out later this year. These are awareness weeks or months about mental health issues. National Stop Comparing Yourself to People Named Danielle Week. Maybe a little too specific. International Sugar Shame Stigma Month. Celebrate Stop Making Fun of My Feet Week. Not a good one. MMA's Octagon for Calm Month. And Cheetos, It's Okay to Love Yourself Even If You're Bloated Week. Okay, so Jennifer, I want to bring you in now. Judgment, forgiveness, overwhelm, and how we deal with them. Anais Nin, the great essayist who was a million laughs, uh, said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Mm-hmm. How do you help people with things like judgment, forgiveness, and overwhelm, which we're all experiencing now? We are, definitely. I, it, listen, this is a hard one because you kind of have to be in a state to judge. Like when you're in a good mood 
and you're feeling okay and things are going well, you don't really feel like judging because it kind of brings you down, right? So part of it is being really aware of your state. When you're in one of those crabby moods and you just feel rotten and you just want to feel like you're not the only one making mistakes, you go around looking for everyone else's mistakes. Oh, look at her. Look at him. All right. Like you're just kind of in that state and you can feel it. It's almost like a vibration in your body. And when you're saying mean things, either in your head or out loud, or even kind of um, slightly disguised, not nice things, and it feels good, you're being awful. Like you're in a, you're in a rotten mood. You're not in a nice state and you need to change states. If it feels good being judgy, you're not in a good space because the truth is healthy, happy, well-balanced people don't need to do that to other people. I mean, we might have a mood where once in a while you do that, but you correct yourself, but you're not there all the time. So part of it is is being aware. What state am I in? And and just like you get up in the morning and you put an outfit on, you wouldn't wake up and say, well, I wore that yesterday, so I'm going to put it on again. Like moods, you don't have to wake up in the morning and be in exactly the same mood that you were the day before. So the brain, neurons that wire together, fire together. So you end up in what's called a habitual brain firing where you're just thinking the same things all the time. So wake up in the morning, get yourself in a different state, think of something happy, think of you know five people in your, in your life that you just love and imagine looking in their eyes and telling them something that you really enjoy about them. Try all day long to stay aligned with feeling in a more positive mood. And when you start getting judgy and you start getting icky and you start getting critical, correct yourself back and then think about what are you thinking about all day? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you talking about? If you're watching the news all day long and you're watching all the stuff that's going on, we're having a breakdown as a country in America. Things are not good. Are we going to add to that? Or are we going to add to the positive side of pulling us out of that? So I guess the big thing is be aware of your states and there's things you can do to change that state. There's having awareness and then making a choice. You got into a state. We have a Disney movie my daughter and I love, and I know a lot of people love him, and we talked to Pete Doctor about this. Pete is the creator of Toy Story and a lot of the Pixar movies, and he made a movie called Inside Out. Mm -hmm. I love it. Now, for mental health, it's one of the greatest movies that's ever been made. I mean, it's fantastic. However, what the movie is about is it's about what happens when your feelings are running the show. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a teenager, 11-year-old girl, and it's about the inner workings of her brain and the feelings that are running, you know, anger and disgust and sadness and how they work together. The thing is, there's nobody responding to those feelings. Mm -hmm. They are running the show, even joy. And what happens when your feelings are running the show and you have no relationship to them, your life is up for grabs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a funny way to look at the, I mean, that movie is a master work of art. Masterpiece. It's amazing. However, at the same time, I'd like to see part two where the 13-year-old Riley actually has some, yeah. she can connect and affect and relate to some of the feelings that she has. Yeah. Well, and here's what's different. When you're 13 and you're 14, you're naturally going to be overwhelmed at times by your emotions because it's the frontal lobe's job to regulate, prioritize motivate, take perspective. That's all higher order thinking. And that's all the job of the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobe. And its job is to um, push down and push back on and regulate the midbrain whose job it is to freak out and get upset. And it's really important to understand all of the different emotions that you feel are there to help us. They're there to guide us. They're there to teach us something. Negative emotions are not bad. They're your emotional GPS system. 
When you feel bad, then you use that feeling to get back on track so you feel okay and you're making choices that you actually feel better about. You know, shame is a really good example of that. There's toxic shame and healthy shame, right? So when you're feeling healthy shame, which is which everyone thinks shame is so bad. It's not. you got to have some shame. If you hurt somebody's feelings or do something not nice, you, you should feel icky about it. It should feel gross. And that's how you go, ooh, I'm out of sync with my community, with my family. I don't want to be that person. That felt awful. I didn't, I didn't feel good after I did that or said that. And then you use that negative feeling to get back on track and say, I'm never going to do that again. Or I'm going to be really careful in the next situation not to do that because I didn't like this feeling. But we get all messed up and think that these emotions are so bad and we try to ignore them and we try to drown them out or drink them out or run away from them or you know, get online or buy things. But really, our emotions are there to tell us something. And so the frontal lobe's job is to figure out what that is. And so as that character in that movie gets older, she will develop her frontal lobe and her frontal lobe will be able to integrate all those feelings. And that's, that's resilience. That's emotional resilience. It's not that you don't feel those things. It's just you don't dwell there or you're able to feel that for a little while, take the information from it, bring yourself back into alignment and move on. So that's what emotional resilience and emotional organization actually is. Here's the the thing now, the country right now, and, and this is no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, it's it's very reactive. Mm-hmm. It's not cogent thinking. And also I noticed that it's very much a negative bias. It's very much what you stand against. Mm-hmm. Very few people come out and say, here's what I'm standing for. It's just, I don't want this candidate anymore. I don't want this mm-hmm. president. I don't want Joe Biden. I don't want Donald Trump. It's it's what you're against about them. Yeah. And it's very reactive thinking. How do you get yourself into a mental state where it's not about reactivity? It's about what you want the country to be about. So, you know, what's interesting because I think in, in many ways what's happening on this grand scale is it mimics what's happening in our own homes sometimes and in our own heads we're often at war with ourselves. We're often uh, reacting from a place of fear. And and no matter what side of the political arena you're on, if you're getting really upset about stuff, you're, you're afraid. And when you're afraid, you're reacting instead of responding. And then the more afraid we get, the more uh, aggressive we get with each other. And then nobody's talking. Everyone's afraid to say anything. And we just get more and more polarized and the division gets, gets broader and broader. I think it's fascinating. I th- I think it's Jonathan Haidt who talks about having what's called a moral matrix. And so just like hair color or how tall you are or whether you're good at music, we're born with these traits, um, uh, uh, sort of moral arguments that we care more about than other things. So for example, you might care more about safety or someone else might care more about freedom and sovereignty. Someone else might care more about justice and fairness. So you can get into arguments, but if you're not kind of in line with the same moral matrix, then the arguments are going to go all over the place, right? So masks uh, is a really good example of this. You can have someone who's concerned with safety, who absolutely believes, I need to wear a mask. I need to be safe. I have a responsibility to keep other people safe. You know, this is really important. And then you can have someone else who also believes in safety, who says, I don't think it's safe to wear a mask. I, I think it takes your, you know, infects your breathing and you breathe your own, whatever the argument is for not wearing a mask. So when two people are having an argument about safety on two completely different sides, no one's hearing each other. You're not meeting in the middle anywhere and it can blow up. The same thing can happen if you're on an opposite side of an argument. So if some, if you're, let's say a couple and the, the wife is more concerned about safety, and the husband is more concerned about, I'll give you an example. My husband and I were walking our dogs the other day 
when we're in a parking lot, my husband (laughs) just lets the dogs kind of run to the entrance of the park through the parking lot. I'm all about safety. So I'm like, wow, what are you doing? And he's more about freedom from, you know, and sovereignty and making his own decisions. And so I kind of thought about that for a second. And before I said, what are you doing? That was dangerous. I said, you know what? I get it. It was, you you wanted to be fast. You'd already thought about where the cars were. I totally get that. But you know what? That gave me a heart attack. And then he was able to say, oh, you know what? I know that you care so much about safety. I should have thought of that too. And we had a completely different conversation. But if I'd been like that, why would you do that? And he'd be all about, you know what? Don't tell me what to do. And that's where the argument would go, right? So sometimes it's finding this moral matrix where you stand. And if you can tune into what you think the other person's really strong uh, moral matrix is, you're going to have a different kind of conversation so that you're not opposing, you're more learning and you're, you're approaching it from that point of view. Does that make sense? It does. But how do you monitor your own, what's going on in yourself so that you can come down from mm-hmm. the reactivity mm-hmm. uh, and be and be present? You know, I, I find myself just after the fact repairing it, mm-hmm. but not before the fact. Right. Well, and that's hard. Like in the beginning, we're often better at fixing it and repairing it. So so that's okay. You can, and every time you repair it, you learn and the person you're having the conversation learns with you, hopefully. And then part of it is just what we talked about at the beginning, just really watching what you're thinking about, what you're obsessing about and thinking about and ruminating about. The world is a mirror. It's, an, it's a mirror. It's a reflection of what you think about, literally. And so being really picky about that mental, emotional diet, what am I watching, right? What conversations am I having? What am I thinking? What am I constantly thinking in my head? Checking yourself and then getting into a different state. So I want to give one tip, and it's such a simple one, of how to get out of a state. So let's say you're in a crabby mood or something set you off and you can't get out of that state and you have a thought that you're just repeating over and over again in your head. It's a very simple trick. What you do is you basically look up And then you look to the left, then you look to the right, you make a square. Then you look down to the right, then you look across to the left and back up to the left. You just make a square with your eyes. And you do that a couple of times while relaxing your breathing and dropping your tongue in your mouth. And you'll be able to get a negative thought that you've been thinking about over and over again out of your head. You can also get a song that's stuck out of your head that way. Very simple technique. I've been alive for many years. I've never heard that. I'm going to do that and I'm not going to, I'm actually going to do it to the point where I'm not even going to look at anybody anymore (laughs) because because I'm tired of looking at people. You're doing a a neurological thing that this is recalibrating your, your brain. You're just interrupting something and I don't exactly know why it works, but it's basically a brain hack. It's a neural hack. Okay. Okay. And if you're really deeply upset, like if your dog just died or something, that's not going to work. It's when you're in, like when you're irritated. Right. When you're bothered by something, when it's, you know, a conversation you had with somebody and you just, you want to stop thinking about it. It's a great little trick. Well, I want to bring in our guest. This guy, I haven't talked to him for a little while. I'm very excited to have him. He is a terrific writer, a terrific stand-up, Emmy-winning writer, also the host of Fitz Dog Radio, the podcast Fitz Dog Radio often heard uh, on Howard Stern, working on Sirius XM, all over the place, and going out to do stand-up, which I want to talk to him about. Greg Fitzsimmons. Greg, you're going out into the world to do stand-up. Are you panic-stricken? I was panic-stricken having to stay home for seven months without doing stand-up comedy. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. 
Do you know that emotionally the distance I have from my family when I go on the road is exactly right? You know, every other Thursday <laughs> yeah. I go to LAX and I get away from them. I miss them. Yeah. I come back on Sunday morning and I love them way more. I'm excited to see them. Well, I'm going to actually tell you something. This is going to be very surprising. And I don't mean to, this is not like an ambush or anything. Oh I was in Pete's Coffee one day, who maybe will become a sponsor, who knows, and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden you walk in with your wife, okay? And instead of disturbing you or going up and saying hello, I literally, I just watched you. Not as a stalker, not as a scientist, not as a social scientist, but just as a person. And I'm watching you guys. And what I experienced is, first of all, tremendous respect love, kindness, caring. You were listening to each other. You were laughing. You got a cup of coffee. You went back into the car. I didn't want to disturb it because it was such a nice connection. And it was like, these people actually seem to like each other. They have a partnership. I mean, this is what I inferred. Now, maybe I was projecting. Probably not, because I don't think any of those things about my own self. Well, maybe it was a Sunday. Yeah, maybe it was a room. Yeah, maybe it was a Sunday. That's right. That is so weird because I never told you this, but my wife and I went into a Pete's Coffee one time. <laughs> and, I and we saw a Jew sitting there who looked like he was out of his, he was mind. Out of his mind. His hair was all muffed up. It was, yeah. He was staring at a laptop in despair. Yes. <laughs> Well, this is exactly what I'm saying. No, I would I would say in full disclosure, like I have such an amazing relationship with Aaron. We really I'm surprised we weren't holding hands because we usually are holding hands all the time. It, it was a Sunday. It was it was it the Pete's Coffee in Marina Del Rey. Yes. Yeah, that's my ritual. She picks me up on Sunday from the airport and we go to Pete's for a coffee on the way home and she gets a blueberry scone and I get a coffee. With this pandemic, I'm, I we don't spend much time apart at all. I never get sick of her. It's really amazing. I feel like the luckiest guy Aww. in the world. That's beautiful. That's brain food. Yeah, that is amazing. I've looked. I, you know, listen, my perspective on life is I've looked at life some, from no sides now. I pick up. I am pretty acutely aware of like the energy between people, and that was. That was something that really stood out to me so much so that I didn't go up and say, hey, how you doing? I just wanted to <laughs> oh, kind of sweet. sit with it. I wanted to kind of enjoy yeah. it. Is that just a natural thing? How, do, how does that develop? I think every good marriage, both people feel like they got a better deal. You know, you look at the person and you go, I can't believe I got this person. I, I won. Somehow, like if you have different traits... And you both sort of like, we just are a good match. Like she's somebody who is very effective in um, making the kids feel heard. She is empathetic and caring and detail oriented. And I'm more of like, you know, I entertain everybody. She's not good at big decisions. I make all the big decisions. She makes all the small ones. She's closer to the kids, I think, than I am. That works. It's not a competition. Some, some marriages, it's a competition of who can be closer to the kids. And I think we have an understanding that she she engages with them in a different way than I do. I love that. Yeah. Jennifer works with, with kids and families. She has this great organization, Connected Parenting. Is this something that you, you don't hear this routinely with the people who come to see you, I would imagine? No. No. And uh, listen, 
and when you have a troubled kid, it can it can put a crack in, in even the healthiest marriage sometimes. So in fairness to people that are listening of really difficult kids. But the truth is, that's so beautiful. That's how it should be. You should be well aware of how your partner compliments you, right? And so many couples get stuck into this idea that they're in conflict. You need to be like me. No, you need to be like me. But really, you wouldn't want to marry yourself. Right. That would be awful. You want someone who's going to compliment you, right? And that you value what they bring. And then together, you're awesome. That's really, that's lovely. That's how it should be. And what a beautiful thing for your children. What a lovely thing for them to see. And and that's certainly when I work with couples and I work with families, that's where I try to help people get to, right? Is to see, you know, how you can compliment one another. Greg, now I know you as a, you're a stand-up, you, you've been doing comedy for so many years, you're a writer, you know, you know, you have a comedian's brain. My question is, how does this affect how you relate to your wife, your family, what you teach your kids about how to deal with their emotions, et cetera. How does that work out? Well, I inherited my depression from both my parents. They did nothing to prepare me for how to navigate life with a, with a constant distraction in your brain of trying to adjust to where other people are, feeling dumb, feeling isolated. And my daughter has depression. And it's actually been the thing that brings us closest together is I share with her when I'm feeling depressed. And she shares with me. And we have very deep, she's a very deep person. She's really incredible. You know, she's got her shortcomings, but she's also like somebody that I think is going to continue to grow into like a really complex person. That's part of depression, too, is I think because you end up being inward, you process things and you're a little bit of an observer. I've talked to her about the gifts of depression as well as the uh, as well as how to deal with this loneliness and this and this randomly being taken out of the action of your own life. That's amazing. Wow. And, and that brings you, mm-hmm. of course, that brings you closer together and it gives her permission and, and a language to talk about what's going on for her. And she can talk about it with her dad, and she knows that she's not alone. She knows she's not the only one, which is a big part of what seals this in, is the isolation, the isolation that you feel like there's no one out there. Jennifer, we think about like how you talk to your feelings, that often feelings and thoughts, mm-hmm. it's a one-way street. Like People don't realize that they can actually talk to themselves and talk to their emotions and talk to their mm-hmm. thoughts and actually make other choices. Mm-hmm. How, how do you talk to depression? Listen, depression is a hard one. And and usually people who are deep thinkers, they're very insightful. They're, they, they fractalize. It's like, if this happens, then that happens, and then that's going to happen. And constantly comparing themselves and really thinking about all the details in the world. And that can be really, really, really overwhelming. There's, there was a really interesting study done on people that have depression. And the one thing that all of the people with depression had is that people who don't have it are much more likely, much more positive and and not in a realistic way. Like if they were to evaluate how something would go or how they did on something or how they, if they played a game or whatever, how they did, they would way be way too positive about what actually happened. And people who are more on the depressive scale were bang on. Like they just called it like, they see it like it is. Um, but that's, and that's, you know, that's a gift, but it's also a curse, right? Because you're always seeing that heaviness and the brain, you know, neurons that wire together, fire together. So the more you think like that, and the more that becomes a brain firing and a habit, the more you kind of get pulled down at that. And some of it's very chemical. So depression and anxiety are like nasty little twins. 
they, you know, they work in tandem together. So you're anxious often. And then when you can't stand being that anxious anymore, it flips over into depression. And depression is really, it's a reflex that if you're, you know, if you're being chased by something and if you're being attacked, eventually your brain goes, you know, forget it. Just lie down. Let it get me. I don't care. Like it's just this switch that switches off. And so for a lot of people who are who are deep thinkers and exquisitely sensitive to their environment and people of depression often are very aware of other people's feelings as well. And the voice in their own head, they're just so hard on themselves in so many ways. And it's really difficult. And sometimes it's really chemical and people don't get it. They're like, oh, just go for a walk. Oh, just look, think about something happy. And like, are you kidding me? It's so much more. That's just the worst when people do that to you. It's the worst because so don't say that to people, right? Just just can I help you? What do you need? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I? You want to take a minute? You want to go for a walk? Just be present. You know, people don't know how to respond when someone's depressed, and certainly when they're e- even sadness, which is very different from depression. It's the same feeling, but it, one is from an outside thing that's happening, and when it's depression, just it's just a state. It's just how you feel, and and you can wake up the next day and not feel that bad. So just be present with people. And even with your own child, just just sit with them. Just soothe. Just be present. Don't go right into, well, I read this and why don't we do this and let's go for a walk and I've heard about this. Like, just just be there. When they're in a better state, they'll ask you, what do you think I can do? What do you do? H- how do you help yourself? And then right. you can then you can take action. But when they're, and it's the hardest thing, Greg, it's so hard to see your child struggle. It's awful. It just, it's really, really difficult, but you really kind of have to dare to be there and just be present, just be present. And the rest of the time, it's like these little steps. So people who are struggling with depression, there's certain things like exercise really, really helps. You know, being really you know careful about nutrition really, really helps. What you watch and think about and talk about, that inner dialogue, that inner voice, if you can learn ways to just stop it, to just quieten it, or to reach for the next best feeling thought is really, really important. Um, and on days when you're feeling better, you can, you can, you know, work on your wiring. And on days when you just feel terrible, just be nice to yourself. Just be kind. It's okay. Gravity blankets, best thing in the world. Yeah, right. Yep. They're great. Crawl under your gravity blanket and just lie there and turn the lights down and just reduce the stimulation Mm -hmm. and just breathe. Right. Sometimes you just have to stay still. And when you're like that too, you can, you can do what I call rotate through the five senses something you can feel that feels okay. Well, this blanket's really soft. This bed's pretty comfortable. The air temperature's okay. Something that you can smell, the fresh air is coming through the window. Just go through your five senses and see if you can gently lift. Now, the worst thing that happens to people who are, who are depressed and who are very intelligent is they lie there thinking, I have no business being depressed. There's people in the world with real problems. I'm the worst person in the world that I, I have no right to be depressed. That's a very common thing. So that's why when you say, oh, why don't you just think about all the people in the world and how, like, that's the worst thing you can say to someone. (laughs) They're already saying that to themselves, right? Just reach for the next best feeling thought. You're not going to jump from feeling depressed to suddenly being happy just because you've, you've shifted your perspective. It doesn't work like that. The brain doesn't work like that. Hmm. But finding one thing, you know, my dad's sitting here with me or my mom brought me some tea and you know what? It's actually pretty nice tea. Or nobody, just people are just sitting with me right now and they're not telling me what to do. Even that, just keep climbing out of that ladder little by little by little. And eventually you'll learn to at least shorten or have more strategies when you're feeling like that. The real action happens when you're feeling okay. That's where you do most of the work. By the way, you're listening to Mental Health Comedy with Ed Krasnick and Jennifer Kalari and our special guest, Greg Fitzsimmons. 
Now, Greg, I, I actually, I think I mentioned this to, to Jennifer. I asked Michael Moore a question one time. I asked him, I said, when you're sitting in an editing room and you're looking at all this horror, whether whatever film you're working on, doesn't that affect your mental health? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Now, you're a comedy writer. You, sometimes you write uh, other things, but the world, you know, especially this country, the country's having a breakdown and the mental health of America is very reactive. My question to you is how do you maintain a sense of equilibrium while writing and working on things that are, you know, when the country is so crazy? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, I do a few podcasts and, you know, I feel like a lot of my audience comes from places like the Howard Stern show and Joe Rogan's show, and they're not necessarily progressives, whereas I am. I have to kind of hold my tongue a little bit because... I feel like people aren't coming to my podcast to be indoctrinated into politics. You know, they're, it's not what they're about. I find I have to kind of sublimate it a lot. And I think it's the same then when I go on the road doing stand-up. I'm very conscious of not being in that bubble that a lot of people get, get in in our society today. And I, you know, I'm not one of those people like, oh, I listen to both sides and I agree. No, I think it's, you're right. There's a lot of stupidity. There's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of rage that's founded on bad information and that's frustrating to me i think doing stand-up reminds me that these people are good people and politics doesn't define 90 something percent of them their children do and their job does and going out to a comedy club and laughing does i think sometimes you can sit in a bubble and you can start to have this vision of a bunch of like you know pitchfork wielding people in overalls that have MAGA hats on and that's all they care about is, you know, deporting people. And it's not, it's just not, it's not how it really is. And Mm -hmm. I think that keeps me with a healthier perspective on what other people would consider the other side. I try to avoid thinking of it as the other side. Now, when you're watching media though, when you're watching the news or you're taking in, you know, almost any media, it's it's not Walter Cronkite anymore. I mean, it's not, that's the way it is. It's, that's the way we think it is, or that's the way we want it to be, or that's what's going to sell more advertising. You know, how do you translate that to your own brain? Do you just basically say, I'm watching an, a program right now, and I'm listening to a host, and, you know, I have my own feelings and thoughts, and I know people are human beings, and this is not that. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I was on foxnews.com this morning trying to figure out what the spin is on this thing. And it's all, I think it's all so predictable that it's comforting. I do think that there, you know, we people always say, oh, who could possibly be undecided at this point? There's a lot of people that are undecided because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that were Trump supporters that are starting to hear this is fake news a little bit too often and they're not buying it anymore. And I think the truth is seeping through. And I think that his base is as riled up as they've ever been. And he's he's adding to that. And Fox News is adding to that. But I also think that it's becoming so redundant. You know, their their tactics are not lining up with people's incomes and their jobs, their belief systems. When, when you've got 75% of the country that believes in a woman's right to choose, and you've got a Supreme Court that's about to overturn that. And when you've got eighty percent of the country believes in hand, you know, in gun control, and uh, and these and the people from their party are not reflecting that. 
in the laws. I think that they're starting to look for something different. And I think, you know, as much as people were were not gung ho about Biden as the candidate, I backed him from the beginning because I said, we got to get this other guy out of office. Let's give them the most center, milk toast, boring, straight white guy. And then let's and then let's go from there. People are very actively about what they stand against. But there's not a lot of what I stand for. But there's a lot of talk about this guy and not enough talk about what do you want the country to be? Where do you want right. to live? What kind of a life do you want? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and the other day I was on some kind of some kind of training for for a phone bank thing and this activist who was a civil rights activist many years ago she spoke for the first time in this whole election I started to get excited because she started to speak about what kind of country she wants. Yeah. And mm. and I I could definitely use with more of that. It's sort of like once you get into that, here's what I stand against, and here's why this is wrong, and here's why you—it's—it's it's almost like the the bias that your brain, the negativity bias in a brain, which basically says all here's what's wrong instead of here's what's right, here's what I want. And I wonder how you how do you do that? How do you promote that? It's tough. I struggle with it. I really do because I am passionate when I. You know, when I hear about the uh, the green, the new Green Deal, or what's it called, the Green New Deal, uh-huh. I say, "Wow, this matches up with pretty much all my politics." I don't know that it's fiscally possible, but it's certainly something that you know, like I consider myself like you know a Kennedy Democrat. I feel like that doesn't exist anymore. The Democratic Party comes so far to the right that the yeah, a lot of those I- ideals don't exist except for in this new wave of, of uh, liberal politicians that are coming up. Mm. And I do feel like an old fuddy-duddy that I'm hedging. But at the same time, I'm seeing what's being accomplished by Trump right now. And all I can think about is putting the brakes on it. It is very interesting. I mean, when I was growing up a long time ago in the 1820s, <laughs> there was a different, you know, it was a different thing. There was civics. People actually taught civics. It was a subject in school. People were talking about building the country, what kind of a country you wanted. I mean, I grew up listening to, you know, listening to Kennedy. And then recently what's calmed me down is I've gone back and listened to FDR through the Ken Burns documentaries. And it's fantastic. It's so interesting because when he came into power, the country was in a bad place. I mean, this was yeah. a really, really awful time. And he came in, and not to say that any politician is perfect mm-hmm. or any politician isn't, you know, is, is, isn't flawed, but he came in and he led, by, he led by giving things. He led by giving money, by giving programs, by, by inspiring people that they could do great things and by asking them to do great things. And it's just been missing for so long. You know, I wonder if that's still if that's still possible. Maybe it is. I, I think the one thing talked about a little bit, the pandemic, it's hard to find a benefit in something like this. But the one thing I'd say is that it makes people more aware of their own mental health, what's going on inside their own heads, and that they must deal with it in some way. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I wish I could go see a therapist. We, we kind of did a thing for my daughter. She's in therapy, and we got into, um, she does a thing called... Uh, DBT, Dialectical mm-hmm. Behavioral Therapy. Know it well. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I did like a, I don't know, like a 10-week program in that. 
but it was more to support her because she's doing it. Jennifer, you talked about a lot of the things that she's doing. Mm-hmm. She has candles in her room and she has the heavy blanket. Yeah. She really uses all the tools that she's learning from DBT. Mm-hmm. But I found it difficult to really engage online with therapy. And I'm dying to go back because I am in a rut and I realize there's times that come up where I'm so angry or I'm so depressed and I don't know where mm-hmm. it's coming from. And it's like, stupid, the world is shut down. You're not <laughs> getting constant <laughs> feedback from audiences that you're funny yeah. and that they want to buy your CD. Yeah. Whatever, you yeah. know, all these little things that sure. over 30 years of doing standup have been built into my psyche are not there to support me. Yes, absolutely. Right, yeah. I think it's also an opportunity to really get close to your family. My son came home from college in March, and he's been living at home. He just went back a week ago. You know, having the four of us home is just like, it's so idyllic to me. And I know that he's going to be in college for another few years. And, you know, that's been really hard having him away. And it was like a real gift to have him home again. Mm -hmm. And we just did a lot of things together. And it made us simplify since my income disappeared you know, doing, not eating out, you know, cooking together more, uh, going on hikes. Like it just felt, it felt like, oh yeah, life can be simpler and I can be happier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And we missed a lot of those things when life is crazy. I mean, we were and, and still are, but maybe slightly better this psychotically adolescent society, right? You got to have more and you got to have this. And I think if anything good came out of the pandemic, it's, I mean, I talk to kids all the time. That's my job. So when they say things like, I love not being in the van every day driving to programs and I love sitting with at the dinner table with my family and we're playing board games and we're going for hikes, family after family is reporting that back to me and we, that's our emotional nutrition. That's brain food. We're social beings. So spending that time with our families is, is really, really important. These are such crazy times. It's, it's the age of, you know, disinformation, not the age of information. So everybody's confused. Everybody's afraid. Everyone's collectively feeling all of it. And, and everyone's just responding and reacting from fear instead of love. And I think if each, this sounds so corny, but honestly, if each little household can just bring it down to what, you know, to that alignment, to, to really caring about each other and trying to respond instead of react and, and coming from a place of love, not fear. If everyone did that and just worried about that, on a global scale, that really would help things, right? There, a lot of healing happens there. We need community and we're all at the same place. We're all experiencing the same things. And by that token, we all need the same things. We all need connection. We all need family. We all need neighbors. We all need, you know, these basic things. It's not about, not as much about politics. It's about basic needs. And if you have your basic needs, if you have your basic things that make you human met, you can live a quality life. It's not having them that really screws people up. You know, mm-hmm. if you can't take care of your health mentally or physically and you, you know, and you can't sustain yourself, I mean, th- those are, you know, those are big issues. Getting them from each other and getting, it, it's, you know, most of the stuff that we talk about with mental health, it's very simple. The interventions are not hard. They're not complex. And the same is true of connection and community. When I was growing up, again, 1824, 
Dirt hadn't been invented yet. People didn't know what God was. There was no God because it was before God. Um, and, and basically, we had extended families. I had a three-decker apartment building in, in Dorchester, Mass., Goodwill Hunting Territory. And I had my uncle on t- top floor and my, my grandparents on the middle floor. And we were in the bottom. And it was like an emotional hmm. parfait. And that's what it was. People saw you as you were. You know, people didn't look good in those days. They would go out wearing their bathrobes. They didn't, people, it was just a neighborhood, you know. I think this has kind of, you know, brought people back to that a little bit. You know, even though we're isolated in some ways, we're probably more connected than we were before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like the time that I spend with my neighbors because uh, I live in Venice and everything is like low fences and people have, patios that they sit on and there's been a lot of like you know distance safe socializing and it's been really um deeper it feels Mm -hmm. like you're really there's no distractions from it's not like hey come on let's go to the movies and then we'll go to a restaurant and then we'll go to a comedy show it's like no we're gonna sit with each (laughs) other and just be for a couple hours Mm -hmm. and we're gonna feel so good that we're not alone yeah yeah, we we had a porch growing up, and we sat on the porch, and my mother would say things out of the side of her mouth. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> my mother was a genius. She was amazing. Very funny. Porch talk. And it was like sometimes you don't even have to talk. You're just there. You're just soaking in other people's company, which is a huge thing and a quality thing for living. I can't thank you enough, but thanks for, for taking the time. I, I want to tell people, though, that you need to listen to Fitz Dog Radio. You have the greatest guests in the world, very talented host. But you're also going out to do stand-up, which is fantastic. And for people who are going to be listening to this in the next uh, week or so, where, where are they going to find you? I just have one date this fall. Everything else has been canceled. I've been canceled more than the primetime lineup at the comedy store. I will be in Cleveland at Hilarity's Comedy Club October 8th through the 10th. You can get tickets at fitzdog.com. And then also the other podcasts I do are um, Sunday Papers with, you know, Mike Gibbons, right? Oh, yeah. Mike is great. Yeah. So Mike and I do a weekly roundup of the news. We go through the Sunday paper section by section on Sundays. And I do Childish. Allison Rosen is my partner in that, and she's got babies, and I have teenagers, so we talk about raising kids. Oh, fantastic. All great. I'm wishing you well all the time, and I'm so happy that we could talk today. And if you want to find out more about Connected Parenting, you go to ConnectedParenting.com. Jennifer has so much meat. She has podcasts about different on topic-driven podcasts about parenting, about family life, about self-parenting. Mm-hmm. go to connectedparenting.com so many great things courses all kinds of support services for you there I want to thank you all for listening take care of yourselves keep coming back at works if you work it I'm Ed Krasnick have a great week bye